Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Baha'i Blogcast world, hello, it's me, Rain, your host, sitting with you live from my office where I've got another guest who has stopped by my home on their travels through Southern California to have a conversation with me about their spiritual journey, their Baha'i path, their work in service. Mr. Todd Steinberg is here. Hi, Todd. Hey, Rain. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much. And for those listening uh, in the background... My dog is snoring on the bed about three feet away. So if, if we're ever talking and you are hearing a in the background, that's what's going on. It's not someone asleep in your earpiece. This is the most adorable pit bull I've ever seen. It's just so cute just watching her. It's a, it's a she, right? That's a she. Yeah, that yeah watching her sleep and snore. It's, it's pretty darling. Yeah, we have a couple rescued pit bulls here. Uh, we've got a whole menagerie at the house. Todd, I gave him a tour. Guinea pigs. We've got pigs and pit bulls are all rescues. All the animals are rescue. But um, thanks for uh, thanks for coming by. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I've known you for a super long time now. Yeah, like thir- over 10 years, 13, 14 years. Yeah, so. and when we started Soul Pancake, you did a lot of work for us, wrote articles, did our social media. Yeah, I loved it. It was the first time I really had an opportunity to just take my raw thoughts and distill them into articles that got comments and got people talking. And even now it's been, you know, over 10 years, I still have a lot of friendships uh, from people I met uh, through Soul Pancake and still keep in touch with them. So it was a great experience all around. Love it. Oh, that's great. Well, you were so super helpful to us when we were first launching. We had no idea what we were doing. And we had that first attempt at kind of a social media website before we became more of a digital media company. And uh, you did a lot of those kind of life's big conversations. We're doing life's big questions, but, you know, we were doing elevated conversations a long time ago. That was the whole point of the Soul Pancake website was elevated conversations, really. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people uh, just loved contributing and having their own questions and just to be able to get in there and, like you said, just take these mundane topics and turn them into something that was really meaningful. Um, Just really loved seeing uh, how the website grew and how the iterations and how it, you know, became uh, more of a video type company. But yeah, yeah. Just learn learn a lot along the way too. It's just really fun to be with something on on the ground floor. Like, oh, that. that's great. Well, I'm so glad that you were along for the ride uh, with Soul Pancake. Now, as it is kind of the sun is setting on the on the big pancake in the sky, yeah. the big Soul Pancake is setting. I don't know what what image I can use. Yeah, maybe just a giant flat disc the in pan- the sky. The pancake's yeah. been eaten, something like that. Yeah. But you know, all things must pass, but it's uh it was it's great. Yeah. So, Todd, I welcome you here and really wanted to talk to you on the podcast and super excited cuz you always have such interesting insights and great stories and you're super inspiring, active member of the Baha'i faith, devoted Baha'i and with just an interesting background, and, and I want to hear about your, your work too, which I find really fascinating. But you became a Baha'i in your 20s, in, in college. That I, I remember it's been a little while, but I remember that being a fantastic story. So can you kind of share 
how you found the faith and what that journey was like for you? Yeah, for sure. So I was born into a Jewish family, had the bar mitzvah, the bris, uh, the whole the whole nine yards, and Hanukkah every year. And when I was turning 13, when you're becoming a bar mitzvah, I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is, I really believe in God and I believe in Moses and all these prophets, but where has he been lately? You know, why, has, you know, it's been like two, 3,000 years. Doesn't he want to, you know, check in with us? Right. And I remember asking and other students. It's been a long time since Ezra. Yeah. Right? So, one of those Old Testament prophets. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I was asking, you know, the rabbi or whoever, maybe it was the rabbi's wife. It's like, you know, where, where's, where's the prophet now? We know that a Messiah is coming one day. Uh, but how come there, there's been a really big lapse, you know, between then and now? And the answer um, she gave us was something along the lines of, if a prophet came now, nobody would believe him. So that's why God doesn't send prophets, because they would just be rejected. And also that they would take advantage. There'd be a lot of false prophets, and they would take advantage of uh, people's gullibility and Mm -hmm. get a lot of money and all that. So she wasn't wrong, but not 100% right and all that. And at the time, I had no idea that Christianity or Jesus had anything to do with uh, Judaism. When they played the Ten Commandments uh, every Easter, I thought that was for the Jews. I had no idea that it was a big part of Christianity too. So it wasn't until like maybe high school when someone was like, hey, how come the Jews killed Jesus? And I was asked this, I was like, what? I don't, I didn't even know Jesus died, you know? I, <laughs> like, what do you mean Jews did How did, did your this? parents shield you so entirely and thoroughly? Was this in Texas, by Yeah, the this way? was in Texas. And, you know, I went to uh, like Hebrew school and uh, private uh, Jewish school, but it could be that I just wasn't paying attention, you know, kind of thing. But I just remember people saying, hey, Jews believe in God and Christians believe in a man named Jesus, right? But I, I had no idea, you know, the ins and outs of all that. And then I remember when someone asked me, why did the Jews kill Jesus? Someone stepped in and said, no, it was the Romans who killed Jesus. I was like, yeah, it was the Romans. You know, I wouldn't know either way. So it, it was very late uh, when I figured out that there was a connection between Judaism and Christianity. You know, and just getting my bar mitzvah saying, it, it feels like this needs an update. That was sort of like the thought at the end, of, like keeping kosher. Like, I remember this, it was this, it was like the rabbi said, now that you're a bar mitzvah, this doesn't mean that your Jewish education ends. It means that it's beginning. I was like, well, it's beginning. So what do I need to know now? He's like, well, you thought there was 10 commandments. There's actually 613 commandments. I was like, whoa, this is like the expanded edition yeah. kind of thing, the, the master's level Judaism. And I remember looking at all these rules. A lot of them had to do with uh, harvesting. A lot of them had to do with all these nuances on Sabbath, in addition to the 10 big commandments. And I was just like, yeah, this needs an update, man. And so, you know, you had your bar mitzvah and you're religious for a year or two, and then you get into high school. And then once college rolls around, that's when I noticed people began witnessing to me about Jesus Christ. And at first I was like, yeah, yeah. Now for the listeners at home Uh who are not from Texas, what does that mean, witnessing for Jesus? What is yeah. that? What is that? It just means someone might be like, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Uh, do you know that Jesus, um, you know, do you want to get into heaven? There could be any number of entrees sure. uh, into that. And I remember uh, every time someone talked to me about Jesus in a sincere way, uh, I would feel like this love in my heart. And at first, I just kind of ignored it. I was like, eh, what is that? That's nothing and whatnot. And it kept on happening. And then I remember rollerblading around uh, the University of North Texas where I went. 
and I overheard, I went by this group of people singing and I couldn't tell what they were singing about, but I felt this love in my heart. And I said, this is the feeling I get when people uh, are talking about Jesus. So I circled back and sure enough, they were singing a hymn. They were just having an, you know, an open air uh, spiritual, if you will. And that's when I figured, hey man, maybe there's something to this Jesus person. And I, I remember someone telling me not too long ago that, uh, you know, um, Jesus really didn't say much. If you pick up a red letter version of the Bible, uh, there's, you know, you can just see what Jesus said in his own words and it won't take you long to read it. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go buy a, a red letter version of the Bible. And sure enough, like there's not much what Jesus said. Uh, it's repeated about four times. Then there's a few more stanzas in, I think, Acts and then the book of Revelation. But it all took but like 20 minutes to read it. And after I read it, I said, okay, if this is true, if this, these words are true, then Jesus is the Messiah and he did nothing wrong. And, uh, you know, this is, this is true. I can see why Christians believe in this. And maybe a day or two later, I remember in my apartment having a little drink of water and I drank a little bit of water. I felt something dribble on me. I thought maybe I, I dribbled some, some water on me, but I looked down and it's like there's blood. And then I look up and I'm at the foot of the, uh, of the cross and I see this giant like 500 foot Jesus on a cross and I just become inundated. This torrent of blood falls on me and I feel completely washed of my sins and I was you just, realize you're sounding completely insane right now. Yeah, and I was just basically having a vision. Yeah, and I said, oh my goodness, I wonder if this means that I've been born again or something. So I called up one of my Christian friends and I said, wow, you know, uh, um, hey man, in order to be a Christian, do you have to go to church? And he was like, no, but it's a good idea. I was like, eh, that's all I want to hear. And I didn't like the idea of, of going to church. I didn't like the idea of becoming a member because I knew enough about Christianity to know that all of these denominations weren't really necessary. It was as if Jesus was this perfect mirror and all these denominations were these broken fragments and each one is holding up a piece saying, I have the true reflection of Christ. And so I was really turned off by uh, the idea of joining a church. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to just, you know, accept this and just kind of keep it to myself. Well, you know, there's that parable of the sower where like, uh, you throw some seed, some of it, the seed will be eaten by the crows, some of it will grow in some brambles, uh, and others may wither and die before they have a chance to hit the sunlight. Only a few will actually grow up and, and become a plant. And so, like with anything else, you can't just brush your teeth once and never have to do it again. You can't just exercise once. So I had this experience, and then it went away. And now, now, I just, I just yeah. want to, this is good, and I want, I want to get to what happens next, but I want to... Also just say, I wish I like having a vision. You had a vision of blood on you and a 500-foot Jesus? Yeah, it was I mean, it was amazing. Now, I was doing... There were uh, not drugs involved that, in this? There's, well, all right. All right. So a little bit about that. I, I was, you know, I did experiment with drugs, but not at that moment. Uh, but I don't think that was a drug-induced uh, thing. I, I, I've done enough. I've experimented uh, with drugs the same way, I guess, Edison experimented with a light bulb, you know? And uh, I, I knew the difference between a, a drug-induced uh, vision, if you will, and the real thing. And yeah. so I felt that was a real vision. Like, I felt real. It felt as real as it can be. Yeah. And so, anyway, I let that slide. And I did, yeah, I just continued to, you know, casually use drugs. And I studied some Eastern religions and, you know, the chakras and this, you know, the ancient Hindu-ish type stuff, the mishmash type new agey type things. And it was interesting, but it didn't really uh, seal the deal for me. 
And then I even uh, took Scientology courses for, for six months back in like 97, 98. And that was... No kidding. Super in, that was super interesting where at first, you know, it's just like you take this stress test. They tell you that you have some engrams or some things that are wrong with you and that you can take these courses and help iron that out. And it was very interesting at first. And uh, some of the stuff was very true. But it, it does, Scientology does have a lot of differences between them and other religions. And one of them is that you have to keep giving them lots of money in order to advance. So you can imagine if like someone gives you a Bible and just gives you Matthew, Mark, and says, if you want to read Luke and John, that's going to be like five grand a pop. Or, mm -hmm. you know, you can pay it out per chapter if you want. It's not a bad business plan. <laughs> yeah. So after a while, this was right at the cusp when people started to use the internet to do research. And so I began to research Scientology. I found all of these uh, teachings. I went to them with these questions and they really couldn't answer them for me. And I felt like, well, they can't even answer these basic questions. And also, they tried to recruit me into their Sea Org, where you sign a billion-year contract. I wasn't really about to do that. And literally a billion? A, a literally a billion-year contract forwards and backwards. So technically, it's like two billion because uh, space and time, you know, you can go one billion this way and one billion the other way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and I, I, I kind of tur turned that one down. Um, I'd give them a billion years in the past, no problem. But the, <laughs> the future, I'd have a, I'd struggle with that. Yeah, and I read about the Sea Org later, and trust me, it was, it was a good move. They they really they knew that I was broke college student, so they were trying to get me to join their church and whatnot. And just I just remember like it just not being scalable. Like their their method of uh, helping mankind, it just wasn't scalable. I remember did a little research for them. They wanted to advertise this thing, and they said. Uh, Todd, can you go see how much it costs to advertise on a bus? So when I called up the bus company, they gave me rates for inside the bus and outside the bus. And I remember telling them, I was like, let me give you the rates for the inside the bus first. And they said, nope, just do the outside. The inside of our bus really isn't our target market. And I was like, I didn't realize religion had a target market. I thought a religion <laughs> is supposed to be for everyone, you know, kind of thing. So um, stopped doing that after a while. They never stopped calling uh, ever. It took them like maybe 15, 20 years to finally stop sending me stuff in the mail and call. But it did give me a really good template uh, for the next religion I discovered. Any guess which one that might be? Mormon. Yeah. Uh, close. The Baha'i Faith. Okay. Yeah, the other okay. B religion. And I remember I found the Baha'i Faith. I, I I saw the sign. It came, you know, I like to say it came to me in a sign. No, literally a sign. It said, uh, this spot is cleaned by the Baha'is of Denton, Texas. So that was one of those cleaning, highway cleaning yeah. Baha'i signs actually paid off. Yes, finally, right? <laughs> but it wasn't that. You see it there, and then you also, uh, I saw it like um, there was a Baha'i center in Dallas, and they had a marquee sign with a quote on it, and I would see that. But then I remember I went to a bookstore, and they had the Idiot's Guide to World Religion. And I guess I was their target market uh, for that book. <laughs> and I wanted to see what they said about Scientology. And in the back, it was in their miscellaneous religion. And so it said something about Scientology, but there was another miscellaneous religion back there. Mm -hmm. And it was the Baha'i Faith. And it gave the 13 principles. It gave a little bit about the history. Everything in there was 100% correct. But I remember thinking to myself, okay, this is the update I was looking for when I was 13 years old. And this is the unity that I was looking for when I felt yeah. the blood of Christ. And I was like, this is the next religion I'm going to investigate. But here's my question for you. And, and I always I always wonder this. Like, it's such a wonderful, it's a delightful story. But 
something set you on this search from the beginning. Maybe it's just your genetics and you were just kind of like, I'm kind of skeptical and I have a big heart and I'm looking for something and I'm looking for answers. But what is it do you think that got you on a, any kind of spiritual search at all? Because one of the things that just frankly frustrates me is in 2021 United States, although it's changing, I think people are searching a little bit more right now. It's so few young people seem to be kind of on any kind of quest. You know, I, I've talked about this a lot on this podcast and in, in my book, but I remember being a kid in the 70s and spiritual questing was cool. Like everyone was doing it. Everyone was investigating something and reading Jonathan Livingston Seagull and trying meditation. And 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 here you are in the late 90s doing the same thing. But I, I, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced there were not very many other people kind of like dabbling and exploring religions, right? Yeah, I guess... Um... Maybe here and there, I think, like, for me, there were Hare Krishnas and campus uh, pitching the Bhagavad Gita and whatnot. Uh, there were bookstores that had uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. You know, it just seemed like every, you know, you had people, street preachers and whatnot. It seemed like everybody was maybe trying to tell everyone else that they had, you know, something to say. The answer. Mm-hmm. But I can't really say, like, what prompted me to keep looking um, I really, I haven't thought about that. Maybe, you know, on my way home, I'll be like, oh, I got it. Let me, let me add this to the podcast. But I guess I just uh, was always searching. Maybe just didn't feel satisfied. I don't know. Natural mm-hmm. curiosity. Uh, I can't really say. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so when I discovered the Baha'i Faith, I called up their 1-800-22-UNITE. And I guess I was one of the lucky few that actually got a phone call back because I hear at the time they just got inundated with phone calls, and it was just too many to, to get back to. to process. I, I still think they struggle with that whole system. So we just want to know that the street sign cleanup worked. Yes. The Dallas Baha'i Center sign worked. And the 1-800-22-UNITE phone number actually worked, at least for one person. Yeah. You're the first person I've met that any of that stuff has worked for. But that's great. It's yeah. worth it. Yeah. You're worth it, Todd. Thank you. So I um, called them up, and then it was... I basically met the Baha'is of Denton and also the Baha'is of Dallas because I lived in Dallas. Who was nicer? You know what? They both were nice in their own ways. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was at the time, I was taking an African-American studies class, and I decided to uh, do a research project where I would study the Baha'i faith and African-Americans. And I did a lot of research, and it was cool. At the Dallas Baha'i Center, I said, hey, I'm doing this research project. And they went to the back and they gave me all of these books, pupil in the eye, gave me all these pamphlets, said, here, here, here's all the research stuff you need. And I had read that uh, the Baha'is do not take donations from outside people. So I go, hey, these these books are really great. Let me pay you for these books. He said, nope, nope, these are gifts for you. I was like, okay, let me at least make a donation to y'all's church. And that all of them were like, no, 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 we, we can't, no, we can't do that. So it was cool to see they put their money where their mouth is. They weren't mm-hmm. like saying, no, we don't take donations. Yes, we take donations. So it was cool to see, you know, words and actions uh, meeting up. And um, I remember uh, being a college student, you know, I did the research, I did the report and all that. And then they wanted me to do a quick little presentation on the Baha'i faith, what I studied, give it at the... Uh, at the Dallas Baha'i Center. And I remember like, eh, I don't know about this. I don't know if I should do it. And it was a few minutes prior. And so I call up the center. I was like, hey, 
I, I don't know if I want to come and do this. And then I heard this collective, ah, like there was like six or seven or like maybe 10 people there waiting for me and they were disappointed. So I was like, I, I mean, I was on my way. Yeah, I'll be right there. <laughs> and so I show up and I tell them what I learned. And, you know, I remember it's been a long time, but they asked me, so what do you think? Do you think, you know, the Baha'i faith has the chops to deal with race unity? And I said, yes, in theory, but unfortunately, I feel that they are too small in number to really have an effect at this point. And they kind of conceded that this was a good uh, argument to have, that they were just too small in number to really affect the kind of change that they posit in their uh, principles. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I continued to investigate the faith. And I was like, you know what? At a certain point, I was like, I'm glad there's this Baha'i faith. I'm glad that there are Baha'is who are doing this. That's awesome news. Really happy for y'all, but I don't want to become a Baha'i. I'm too happy. Look, they got They have rules on drugs and drinking, and I'm really happy doing all that. And they want you to do things and give money. And I just want to be my own person, you know, kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I'll continue to study the faith, and you know, that'll be that. Well, it was the summer of uh, 2000, and a Baha'i friend um, who taught me a lot about the faith, him and his wife, invited me out to. Uh, their family reunion uh, a couple states away in Missouri. And on the way there, the friend asked me, he was driving, um, or I was driving, he asked me the question, hey, Todd, how do you feel about Baha'u'llah? And that moment, I felt like I was struck by lightning, quickened, if you will. I felt that even though I was driving, I felt I had left my body and that my body was driving the car so that I could have this moment in time where I realized that Baha'u'llah was who he said he was. And it took me a minute. I I was having such an experience and I was driving and I finally went back to what I was doing. And I turned to him and said, oh, you know, he's okay, He's all right. (laughs) And I just wasn't ready to tell anyone how I felt. What is it with you and these religious visions? This is is amazing. See, you would have been one of those minor prophets from, from the Torah. Oh, yeah, like a chariot. I would love to have my, you know, a a flaming chariot or something like that. Yeah, flaming chariot, badass. Yeah, tell everyone to, you know, wear their their sackcloth and put ash on their head. That would have Mm -hmm. been, that would have been me. So, fun story. Uh The great playwright, Tony Kushner, and screenwriter, uh, multiple Tony and Oscar winning writer, he used to teach at my school at NYU, and they did a project. I didn't get to do it, but... The class under me got to do it where they each took on an obscure prophet from the Old Testament and they learned their speeches and then they dressed as them and they went down to City Hall in Manhattan and they yelled at passersby as a kind of performance art of uh, Old Testament prophets. And uh, it was really cool. That sounds totally up my alley. Yeah. Because they were like, repent ye of the sins and they were... uh, you know, and it was, but it was all about remember God and like they're down at Wall Street. And oh, wow. It was a really cool well, like, theater like project. A prophet cosplay. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it Man, how about the, I would do the talking donkey, see if I could uh, uh, pull that one off. I don't, I don't know. Is that Shrek? What is that? No, was there was he a, a prophet. I don't... Uh, basically, basically, God was able to make a donkey talk. And mm-hmm. I think it was just God's wicked sense of humor. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to make this donkey tell you the, the truth. That's how I feel about you. I, the, the, basically, the, the, the theme there was that, um, yeah, I'm going to make this donkey uh, make an ass of you. It was almost like a play on words, if you will. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never heard that story before. Yeah. It, Anyways, it, you're having yeah. these visions. So I'm having this vision. You're in the car, but you're yeah. like, eh, Baha'u'llah's okay. Yeah. But inside. Inside, I was like, I got to tell someone 
as soon as possible how I feel about Baha'u'llah. So met the family. Uh, he had, you know, three, four sisters. And he had, this is a white Alabaman, Alabamian, someone, a white guy from Alabama who married a, a lovely uh, Kenyan woman. And all of his sisters, um, you know, married people from other uh races, if you will, different, you know, parts of the world. So it was like a, a family reunion where like everyone was multi-hued and different backgrounds. So that was kind of cool. But I had already known uh, about that. That wasn't, you know, I was, couldn't wait. So that night, late at night, maybe two in the morning, we're just talking up the Baha'i faith with my friend Vince. And I said, hey, earlier when I told you that Baha'u'llah was just okay, I was lying. He's like, oh, you don't think he's okay? I was like, no, not at all. I think he is the prime manifestation of God for this day. I want to be a Baha'i. And he's like, oh, okay, calm down. All right. Because I was really, I just had it, you know, it almost broke down. Just uh, in, yeah. yeah. Just had to tell him. He's like, okay, calm down. Look, we're, we're a few states away. Uh, when we get back to to, to town, uh, you know, we'll go over some stuff. But just, you know, is, you know, it, you just just accept it, you know, just kind of like, you know, be chill and, and we'll get back to town. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I will. But all I could think about at that point was I had to go back home take all of my drug paraphernalia and put it in a big trash bag and throw it away. I was so excited about doing that. I was so excited about taking all that stuff and throwing it away that it really consumed consumed me. That's all I could think about. And I think it had to do, like the reason why is that so often when we're seeking, we say, God, give me a sign. Give me a sign that you're real. And of course, you know, that's not the right thing. We should be like, God, I'm going to give you a sign that I'm real. Like, that's the thing we should be doing. Hmm. So when I finally went home, I like literally ran up the stairs to my apartment, took all of my paraphernalia, which was a lot. You had like, you know, you know, bongs and stuff like that. I don't know if I needed to find bong for this audience, but uh, smoking utensils and whatnot and put it all in a giant plastic trash bag, threw it out, got on my knees, said the, the long obligatory prayer. And then I was just... In the comments below, we'll put a link to bongs, yeah. like in the Wikipedia <laughs> entry yeah. for, you know... There sure, might be yeah. some Persian pioneers in Bolivia that don't know what that is. Right. So that yeah. would be a handy um, yeah, guide. Yeah, a, a user's guide, yeah. So, <laughs> a uh, former user's yeah, guide. Yeah, former user's guide. So uh, after that, I, I you know, said the obligatory prayer. And I, for weeks, for like a good 10 days, I felt as if the euphoria was never ending. Like it was just this nonstop realization that I was born again. I was born to be a Baha'i that there was nothing better on the planet than to be a Baha'i. I felt so good that I thought this was meant for someone else. So I went to my friend Vince. I was like, hey, man, I think someone upstairs made a mistake. I'm not good enough for this. And he says, oh, Todd, none of us are good enough for this. This was a gift. So accept this uh, gift. Mm. I was like, okay, I accept it. Now what? And that question, now what, is the thing that I ask myself just about every day. Now what do I do to serve the faith? Now what can I do to be a better Baha'i? And it's just a continuous journey that's been never-ending since, you know, the early 2000s. And here I am So now what? So, and that's 20 years. Yep. 21 years. And now what? <laughs> what? How are you answering that question for yourself? Man, it's you know, it's it's been different. I uh, you now know, you have two little girls you're raising. Yeah, it yeah, that's that that was a game changer. Getting married seven years ago, having the children, I thought I had life all figured out. And of course, anyone who has children, then no, you don't know anything. Everything Wait till is, they're teenagers, bro. Yeah, so everything is back. Yeah, it's like I'm 44, 45, and I have no regrets because I think everything is done for a purpose, but. 
it's like, ah, oh, man, I really wish I was younger, just, just a little bit younger and be able to have more children and save up for them and not think about myself and really just plan, like just plan from an early age to have, you know, raise beautiful kids. Uh, but here I am and I, I love them. And but what's the now, but what's the now what of 2021? <sighs> I guess the now what is, uh, as far as me, you know, 2021 for the world is we all know is to teach the faith, get folks in the Institute uh, courses, elevate conversations. Uh, but for me in particular, it's like, okay, that was back when I was 21 or 22, 23. Now I'm 44, 45. You know, you can make a lot of bad decisions back in your 20s and overcome them. You're learning. It's great. And now it's like, all right, you got to think about real carefully what you're going to do because you have less runway. Uh, so for now as a Baha'i, it's about, I want and now I'm in the suburbs, I want to be able to teach the faith, make friend, those friendships, and do what I can to help people have better lives, whether that's spiritual, help them with their work, help them with their art, wherever I can be of service, it doesn't have to be directly teaching them about the verities of the faith. As we all know, actions speak louder than words, and being a Baha'i is, is, is mostly your behavior. I recall that story where someone recognized the Bob from behind just by the way he walked. And that's just a really powerful thing to have mm. that kind of command presence where you enter a room and someone says, who is that guy? I'm not saying that's me, but sometimes you'll be, you'll, you'll be talking and you'll realize that th these people are really listening to you. So make this conversation count because you may not get it again. Well, I think that thing that you've brought up throughout your stories here are, you know, you're kind of crazily in tune with your instincts and impulses and feelings and with your heart and so many of the stories of the Baha'i faith but of all the world's religions have to do with that you know that the transformation of the heart and the heart being touched and so we just never know how that's going to affect people how that's going to work you know you, you saw it on a you saw it on a street sign, you know, you saw it on an idiot's guide to religions in a, in a book. Like, we don't know, you know, God has some powerful miracles up his sleeve. Yeah, and you never know. Usually it's the things you aren't thinking about that have the most effect, where you think, oh man, I knocked that question out of the park. Here they come running, they're all going to declare. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to give Abdu'l-Baha high, high fives in my head. <laughs> And whatnot. But then, you know, nothing happens. And then like six months later, someone said, hey, Todd, you know, you don't remember this, but uh, you made this like off remark about being foolish in college. And that helped me realize uh, how silly I was. I, I'm, I've been a closet drinker and I, I finally quit drinking. You don't even remember the conversation, but this was a, this is what it was. And so now I quit drinking and I lost weight and now I'm running a half marathon. I just wanted to thank you. I was like, okay, you're, you just, you're you welcome, just don't know. I yeah. guess, yeah. you know? Yeah. So a lot of the times it's like that where you're doing the, uh, I guess the, what they call in baseball, small ball. You know, like we think about people hitting home runs and grand slams and walk off home runs. Mm -hmm. But so, many of, so much of baseball is like, all right, get that sacrifice bunt, get that base runner on second so that the next guy can do a sacrifice fly and get that one run. There's, there's a lot of that in the Baha'i faith too, where we're trying really hard to, uh, you know, get seekers to do stuff. Sometimes it takes extra text, extra calls. Uh, that kind of stuff. It's not going to just be these these grand um, gestures all the time. Yeah. Well, fast forwarding a little bit, uh, I find your line of work super interesting. Plush in a rush. Yeah. Am I saying it right? That's right. Plush I got in it right. Rush. Yeah. So your family business is 
stuffed animals and teddy bears, which is just fantastic. I didn't ever think about. We've had extensive conversations about supply chains of stuffing for teddy bears and and whatnot. And uh, tell us a little bit about that business. But more importantly, you know, the, the, the central concept uniting this podcast is kind of how do what is that intersection between our work and our faith and and for a small family business owner that that is not something we've had a lot of on this podcast I've had professors and authors and artists and scientists but a small family business owner uh, you know working in a, in a capitalist system how does that intersect with your faith but yeah. first tell us about <laughs> this plush in a rush. Yeah, so it's basically just uh, we're a uh, designer and distributor of teddy bears. Uh, we get them done overseas. We get them by the container. We we stuff, no pun intended, our warehouse full of these bears. And then we put it on the web and try to get customers, uh, not big customers, not your targets and Walmarts and stuff, but other small businesses who need a, a good supply of teddy bears for their florist uh, sales, or maybe they're doing gift baskets, that kind of stuff. So we specialize in small to medium businesses and nonprofits, schools, places where the large importers, it's too small uh, for them, but just the right size for us. And we're able to give these folks really good customer service and a good product. All right. All right. Yeah. So like the intersection, I guess, would be where, um, you know, like I'll say, Hey, you know, being a Baha'i, it's not something you do on a Sunday afternoon. It's not a part-time job where you can clock in and clock out, nor is it a full-time job. Being a Baha'i, you're on 24-7 a day. You can make uh, every moment of your life can be spiritual if you allow it and if you're looking for it. So every decision you make throughout the day can be 100% spiritual and on point and something that God would be proud of, if you will. Mm, mm. And so uh, as a Baha'i... and you know, again, easy to say, harder thing to do, day in and day out, seven sure. days a week. Mm-hmm. We're all human beings. I mean, we do it, but yeah. you know, some of the listeners might he, not. Yeah, I mean, you pick up a Baha'i, Baha'i prayer book. The biggest section in there is the one on forgiveness. So that should tell you something, right? <laughs> and even all, like ninety percent of the others, even though the heading isn't forgiveness, there's forgiveness in those prayers. So yeah, a small business owner. Uh, the main thing that I, I really like, I just like the fact that we're able, so many of our employees have been with us for years, if not decades. A lot of our customers have been been with us for years and decades and whatnot. And, you know, on one... I mean, the Bob was a merchant? The Bob was a merchant, right? And I hear that even uh, Abdu'l-Bahá was a mat maker, like he would weave mats. That's unsubstantiated. I don't know, like... Hmm, I haven't like, heard. Like, apparently, that was his trade. That was, like, sort of his uh, thing that he could do uh, on the side. But, I like, I have not... Uh, that, that might be something we, we do a little bit further research on. Yeah, it sounds kind of mundane. Oh, I'm just a teddy bear salesman, that kind of stuff. And you could be that way if you were a heart surgeon. You can be like, yeah, I'm a heart surgeon, but, you know, you operate on these people and they're going to die anyway one day, you know. So you can have a really terrible attitude about whatever you do. Or you can choose to have a really awesome attitude. And I remember they were interviewing everyone at NASA back in the 60s and 70s prior to them putting the men on the moon. And they interviewed, I think it was a janitor, and they asked the janitor, so what do you do here? And he's like, yeah, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And they oh, were, that's great. Yeah, they realized. Cause, and it was like, yeah, you need to have cleanup crew. If you didn't have a cleanup crew, this whole thing would, would, would go to yeah, waste. Yeah. And so with teddy bears, like, you know, when you're in it day in and day out, you're, you're sending them out by the box, you're putting them on trucks, you're taking the money, you're reordering, you know, just a lot of 
you know, moving parts. Then you get the phone calls, you get the pictures, people sending it to you, uh, how wonderful you guys are, you have the best customer service, here's how, you know, how happy you made these folks. And then you'll get phone calls like, hey, I'm just some person, but uh, my kid got this as a gift and the dog got to it. Can you please just send me one? I know you're a wholesaler. Can you please just send me one? It's her favorite toy. And I did a little research on it and you realize that for a lot of kids, a teddy bear is like their first real friend. Yeah. And they learn a lot from it. My son had, in fact, we still have it somewhere. He had a little stuffed animal named Jelly Cat. It just had a little label on it. It said Jelly Cat. That's a company out of England. Yeah. You know that? You know that? Yep. Oh my God. He loved his Jelly Cat. And it was like six years. Jelly Cat was his constant companion. Yeah. I mean, I had a stuffed animal named Gump. He was sort of like an elf type gnome creature. And I had stories about Gump and I had birthday parties for Gump. I lost Gump at school and my teacher found it and I tried to give her a $2 reward for it and she turned me down and I was like, how could she turn down $2? You know, this woman's crazy. You know how much candy that is? Yeah. So and that, that was 1980s dollars, you know, so that yeah. didn't go far. But yeah, you're, you're giving these kids friends. And so I felt like I am a facilitator. I am a, a friend provider for little children. And even seeing my own kids just being able to be comforted by a little uh, doll and to nurse it, like, you know, seeing them nurse it and hug it and all that. And that that is something uh, relevant you're doing for the world. And you're not only helping my family, but everyone who works there. And, you know, part of being in the free market, you brought up capitalism. But the whole point of free trade, people think that if you're a business, you're basically sucking the wealth out of the person you're selling the thing to. But in reality, uh, a free trade means both parties are better off than they were before. That's the whole point of free trade. Uh, I want your money more than I want this teddy bear. You want this teddy bear more than you want the money. So when you trade, you're like, haha, I got what I wanted. You got what you wanted. We're both happy. And that's how wealth is created. You know, if you, you, you trade money for an education because you want the education to better yourself. And then that uh, place where you got the education needs it so that it can continue to employ people and so on. So uh, that is the the good spiritual noble aspect of free trade that is often dismissed. A lot of people see business as a necessary evil. And I think it's all about, you know, at the end of the day, what makes something good is not the system. This Having a good system helps, but it's the people. Uh, if you have good people, you'll have good systems. Like we have this administrative order that is ordained by Baha'u'llah, and imagine if like a spiritual assembly was filled by nine Cretans. Do you think they would actually follow any of the uh, Baha'i principles? No, they would use it and make it their own thing. They would corrupt it. So mm-hmm. it's only a system is only as good as the people that are in it. What if an assemb- it was an assembly of nine teddy bears? I mean, that might work, you know. It def- That'd be cute. It, it, in a little tea set. Oh, that would be cute. And have a little picture and, you know. Have some chai. Yeah. That'd be great. So, yeah, uh, at the end of the day, um, it, it, you're making lives brighter. And yeah. that's what. And, and teddy bears are a symbol of love, too. Like, people give them when they love someone and appreciate someone. And it's a, it's a hug. So it's so nice that you're, you know, better at teddy bears than crossbows. Yeah, and you know this the spiritual walk. You know, it's like, do you have a spirit? Is your business spiritually minded? And you know, when you say that, what does that mean? Does that mean you have like a tea ceremony in the afternoon? Does that mean you meditate during lunch break? No, you know, being spiritually minded, everything could have spiritual principles. Going to use the the restroom, something as mundane as using the restroom, can be spiritually minded, where you're 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 courteous and. Uh, you know, you're, you, it's, it, there's just everything that you do in life can have that spiritual dimension where you're thoughtful and you think about it and you follow through. So business is, is no, is no different. Yeah. 
And one of the uh, interesting side paths, you, you have uh, an incredible amount of different hobbies and things you've done. You've done animated television shows and children's books, and, and we can get to that some of that. But also you have, uh, over the years, done a tremendous amount of outreach with Baha'is that are incarcerated. So can you talk to us about that? How did that start? Yeah, so I, I think it has to do with I've always had a natural desire to teach the faith to anyone, anywhere, at any time, on any subject, answering any question they have. I just could not wait to teach the faith in, in any regard. You know, drive two hours one way, it doesn't matter. So uh, someone um, in a prison about an hour and a half away from Dallas had written the assembly. Uh, he had discovered the Baha'i faith from someone else who was incarcerated who was a Baha'i and was just writing to the assembly asking questions. And they had asked me, hey, uh, can you and this one other dude go up and meet this guy? And so we went up there to ascertain his beliefs and we got turned down. Turns out he had to be on their list and whatnot. But he had written back to the assembly saying, I saw that you guys came. Give me your IDs. I'll put you on the list. And then I think I just did a uh, we went back, met this guy, and uh, yeah, you know, he totally was legit, and uh, he got moved to a different prison. I continued to see him, continued to send correspondence to him. He started to have all these questions about the uh, Kadabi Khan, and at first I was able to answer it, but then he really got in the weeds. When you're locked up, you have lots of time to study. He taught himself Arabic, and he was oh able... My goodness. Yeah, he was able to really get into it, and I was like, look, man, how about I just send you the study guide on the Kadabi Khan? And maybe that'll, you know, get you going. So I sent him that. Then he began to answer all the questions in the study guide, giving them to me, asking me to answer them. I was like, man, I don't know the answers here. So I found someone in our community who was basically a Kadabi Gan scholar who graded him. And I began bringing his uh, kids to see him. I think his kids ranged the ages from like 8 to 12 and whatnot. Brought his mom. And we just struck. He was basically my age. And his crime, I'm not going to get into all that, his name or his nature of his crimes, but it was it, it was something to where, yeah, you know, what he did was bad, uh, but it's nothing to where it would affect you now or the rest of your life kind of stuff. And he's mm. out now. We talk all the time. And uh, he, he's, he's he's married. Still a Baha'i? Still a Baha'i. He's married and his wife is now a Baha'i who wasn't a Baha'i uh, prior. Wow. And, and whatnot. And he, he's been translating a lot of stuff from Arabic into English, knowing full well that it's just a, you know, a... Uh, uh, what do you call provisional, it? Provisional type yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And that's his thing. He loves doing that. And God bless him. And, you know, he just and he does a lot of art and calligraphy. One of his pieces that he did in prison for me, it's hanging on my wall in a beautiful frame. So uh, really have some great, you know, stories. But the cool thing, talking about these perfunctory acts that end up having really profound effects. One of them was that he's like, hey, do me a favor, write to the chaplain, tell them that the Baha'i faith is a religion and that we have these holy days and that we have a fasting period. That way I can actually get fed before and after sunset because if it's not on the books as a real religion, then I have no choice but to basically you know, use my own stash of food before and after. It gets expensive. I can't bring food from the cafeteria to my room. Mm. Whereas if it's a legitimate thing, they will give you a sack lunch that you can you know, have before and after. So I, I wrote to the chaplain, Chaplain Charlie, whatever. I said, hello, greetings. I'm a member of the Baha'i Faith. Uh, and I gave him like something on the letterhead of the National Spiritual Assembly. And uh, here are our holy days. Here's the, here's the fasting, fasting period. Mm-hmm. And sent it to him and didn't hear back. And I said, okay, I did that thing. Well, a few days, maybe a week or two prior to the fast, he writes to me. He's like, you're not going to believe this. The chaplain put up flyers all around the cell block saying, if anyone is celebrating 
the Baha'i Fast, please see Chaplain Charlie so we can get you signed up. Well, three people that he was teaching the faith to who were like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. When they saw that, when they saw that it was officially recognized as a, a real religion, all three of them declared their love for Baha'u'llah, and all three of them wanted to participate in the fast, and they were like, yeah, okay, you were right, this is a legit thing. And it was because of this little letter that I wrote, you know, like six months prior. Yeah. And uh, one of them uh, who was locked up, I don't want to get into the in, into the ins and outs of being a Texas prisoner, but if you have no family to give you money, it's really tough to get everything you need, i.e. toothpaste, i.e. stuff to keep you clean, uh, nutritious food, etc. And so this one dude, you know, you have like a hustle. The hustle might be you fix someone's eyeglasses. It might be um, fixing someone's radio and they give you some stamps and then you can use the stamps to get food from the commissary. So this one dude had gotten a stash, then someone, uh, he pissed someone off or vice versa. And one of the things, one of the easy ways you can get back at someone is tell the guards that this person has an illegal stash of food in their locker because they know that he's poor and indigent they know that he couldn't afford the stuff in the in the commissary. So they tossed his, his cell block. They took all the food that he was going to have. He was going to celebrate Nauru's with all of the food. He was going to make a big plate of homemade nachos. So everyone felt really bad for him, and a lot of people gave him everything that he needed to make it. But guess what? Someone else narked on him, and they took all this stuff. So I asked my friend, what if I just sent this dude 30 bucks? Would that be enough to cover Nauru's luncheon? He said, oh, it'd be way more than he needed. So I sent him, I, I never felt so, it was one of those spiritual moments where like writing a check for 30 bucks, I was able to buy this, this intense happiness in my heart for 30 bucks and I sent mm. it to him. And he wrote to me saying, you wouldn't believe, you know, when I saw that money, I just broke down and cried because for once he was able to legitimately spend that money and have this wonderful Baha'i uh, Naru's with him and his friends. And oh. it just like made me cry and it made me really like, uh, yeah, these guys just don't have anyone that love them. Mm. They don't have family and then, like just to be able to, you know, get them some Fritos and some bean dip and some guacamole, and that just makes their month. It's just amazing. Mm. And so that would be the thing, is that you're able to just do the smallest gestures, and because they have such a dearth of love, that the smallest gesture of love is seen, it just has the power of a hundred suns. And Mm. that is, you know, just that alone is able to make me want to help these folks whenever possible. Mm. So that that was sort of the culmination of, of that saga. Then another cell that somehow, somewhere in West Texas, another group was like, we got 20 or 30 people here who have all declared in Baha'u'llah. We need you to come up here and start teaching them the faith. So I showed up with a friend and you have to go through the volunteer process. And the chaplain was super nice. We brought in barbecue. I brought in a camera. I brought in the greatest name. I brought in an autographed uh, bassoon king for uh, this one main guy and another one for the group because they're allowed to have books that became part of the Baha'i book stash there. That's scary that the bassoon king was part of the Baha'i library. (laughs) Yeah. It's appropriate in a prison, though. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, had, had this picture taken, and I remember posting it on Facebook on the largest Baha'i group, whatever, and... It was a few days after the election of 2016, and it just went completely viral. Everyone was messaging me. People wanted me to say something in all of these different uh, 
uh, Mac, you know, like the Baha'i, American Baha'i and so on and so forth. I was just inundated. Apparently it got to the Universal House of Justice. And now if you Google Baha'i prison photo, instead of seeing Akka, it's me with all of these Texas prisoners with one of them holding the greatest name. Mm. And, you know, it was so weird. It's so, uh, first of all, just because you're in prison doesn't mean that you're like Hannibal Lecter or Lex Luthor. You're not like this diabolical genius yeah. Joker type. They're, they're basically, most of them are just dudes that did something really awful and in their past, and now they're just and trying to live their life. probably something really dumb when they were drunk and like 17 or yeah, something like that. Sometimes like that, the one that I was going to, the stuff that they did was probably was way worse than just a wayward moment. It was something that it was with malice, I guess you could say. Now, the worst of the worst were actually in solitary confinement, locked up. The ones that I was teaching were um, uh, there on good behavior, mm-hmm. if you will. So um, We should do a Baha'i prison break. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, break in. It's harder to break into that place sometimes. Uh, but um, so they had a really good experience with them. You know, just being able to hug a guy that I know, you know, killed people, you know, committed arson, did terrible things to women, and you know, you just don't think about that when you're talking with them. Obviously, but you were talking about those forgiveness prayers, and there's so many Baha'i writings about justice and. You do the time here, you do the time on this earthly plane and your crime is, you're absolved, you know, and you pray for forgiveness and you can move on your spiritual journey. And and uh, and, and that is one thing that I think that this culture doesn't understand. Like if someone does the time and they have, you know, paid their debt to society or whatever, or whatever, made demands or however you want to put it, um, that we should forgive them as well, individually and societally, you know? They shouldn't have this kind of mark of Cain on them because they have been in prison. Mm-hmm. They did their time. They served their sentence. Yep. And now we need to give them as much of a chance as, as possible. Yeah, and, you know, going back and forth these long uh, trips, and I was thinking... You're what? talking about the drives the to drives from the to prisons. And, yeah. they're, they're hours outside of the, of the Texas cities. Yeah, and, and going back and forth thinking, you know, in order to fix the prison system, you basically have to fix all of society because you basically have to, A, educate them, give them job opportunities, but most of all, give them um, a reason of being, um, a will, a will, if you will. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the word, but like... Uh, like the, purpose. A purpose. Thank you. A purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what they. So many of them are lacking, and that's the point. Like even of religion. the even the vision in the Baha'i faith that every man should have an occupation, yeah. and that you know if you don't have a job, it's like a tree that doesn't create fruit, and the and that kind of tree is dead and fit for the fire. And so that that internalizing, like I want to have an occupation, I want to um, you know be a contributing part of society. Yeah, not only that, like people like the idea of if you have a job it makes you a better person because you have to be sober, you have to show up on time, you have to be productive, you gain and you gain skills and you gain knowledge, you meet people and you're able to leverage that for even better and more productive and service. Then you gain and so self-esteem. On. And yeah, and then yeah, then yeah, you the self-esteem aspect and then you bec- you can become a mentor and and help more people uh, you know become better. So, yeah, so these guys, they, they need all of that. They need so much more resources than probably is available at the moment. And seeing some of these guys who get out, they just don't have a chance. Uh, some of them that I've met, they weren't Baha'is. They had written a couple times, and then, 
you meet them and it's just like, wow, you, you need so much, so much help. Um, and I think I'm reminded of this quote by uh, Frederick Douglass, the great American, who said, it's easier to grow great children than to fix broken men. You do what you can for these guys. Um, but, you know, if you're listening to this and like, oh, I want to go teach at a prison. That sounds pretty cool. Um, the, the National Spiritual Assembly has basically said, look, if they come to you, great. Write to them, but don't get your hopes up. It's very difficult for that for them to maintain. Your best bet is to just continue with whatever the plan is at the moment, mm -hmm. which is the institute process. And it's better to create, you know, this culture from the ground up with these folks, starting with the children. And the way you make a better society is by growing better people, because you grow better people, they will filter in to the schools, they will filter into the criminal justice system, into the businesses, into government, and so on. You know, a lot of people think you can just create this system, and if I'm in charge of the system, I can make everyone good. Mm -hmm. But what, like language and the law, it's done by iteration and by people over a long period of time. Great cultures will create great systems that will protect the rights of the people. So our best bet is to, uh, you know, carry on with the, with the teaching and getting those people elevating conversations and, and so on. Uh, but I will say this, that if you really want to contribute in a meaningful way for someone is to join uh, like a mentoring group, like Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Mm -hmm. I did that, and I was paired up with a nine-year-old boy who, whose dad was basically out of the picture, and it was just a wonderful thing just every two weeks just to go out with him and either go see a movie or go get groceries or whatever it might be, but just seeing him grow over time. And at first, he doesn't care. He won't tell you how much, but then at a certain point, 21, 22, he'll say, my goodness, you've been with me my whole life. Every good thing that I know is from you, man. Yeah. And they, they say, like, you were right about everything. Half the time I wasn't really thinking you. I just thought you were kind of a nerd. No offense. You know, that was like his exact words. But <laughs> now I realize, you know, you were, you were trying to Boy, give was me he right. good advice all the time, you know, and all that. And we still talk. We see each other. And uh, he's even met the kids. But there's also them. organizations that go into the prisons and do arts work and uh, education and stuff too. If you if you if you wanted to go in that direction, it doesn't have anything to do with like converting people to Baha'i or anything like that. But you know, that's that's a great service to offer hope to folks that don't have a lot of hope. Yeah, I mean, I really I even told these guys I really wish the prison was close to my house so I can just go drive over a block or two over and, yeah. and see them. I know a lot of people like I don't want a prison next to my house, but George Carlin, the comedian, had this one bit. Why not have a prison next to your house? If they break out, what do you think they're going to do? Hang around? You know, they're going to try to leave. So don't worry if a prison is next to your house. It's like, yeah, that's a good point. But they may stop by your house, you know, on their way out of town. That's to your minivan on the yeah. way to someplace else. Yeah. But listen, um, Todd, you you do a lot of other stuff. You've you've written children's books. You've created a animated series, which you've now turned into, it looks like a graphic comic stuff here. So... Um, why this other uh, creative stuff on the side? Yeah, that's just it. That was like when you asked me why I do the search. Why do you need to? Why do you feel the need to do? Uh, you know, writing children's books and all that. And I think it's just something I just wanted to do it. I guess it's just sort of a hobby. I always saw myself as a storyteller, and I wanted to have something tangible. Uh, so yeah, I created a, a TV series that I tried to pitch called "Don't Tell My Wife I'm a Cult Leader." And I got about as far as you can get with it as a guy in his 30s in Dallas. And now looking back, I'm kind of glad that it didn't happen because, you know, show business is not all fun and games. 
Uh, it can, it's just a lot of hard work and it may not go your way. And I'm just happy with the life that I have. But I did, you know, turn that into a graphic novel in part because um, I wrote a children's book series that um, that all the kids who I gave the books to loved it. But again, it's like, do I want, how far do I want to take this? Well, the main thing is I just want to create it. I don't owe the world anything else but then to just put it out there. And it's like I have a friend who's a great photographer, amateur photographer. He has no intent to become like a professional photographer and quit everything. But it's great to see his website and all the wonderful photos that he's taken of uh, South Dakota. And it's just like, man, I'm really proud of that dude, you know, who's made the most of what he has. He's taught me a lot about product photography and it's really helped me with my business. And that's what you do. You know, you put it out there, uh, you take pride in it. And then the people who encounter it are like, wow, that's amazing. So maybe that's just it. Just want to have a little platform uh, of people that enjoy it. Just like you might be really good at making barbecue ribs for your friends. It doesn't mean you want to start a barbecue restaurant, but you like to, you know, uh, host parties and make food for people. Well, from a Baha'i perspective, um, first of all, amateur is from the Latin root, ama, for the love of. And there's nothing derogatory about doing something for the love of something. And we know that the creating of arts is the same as worship in the Baha'i faith. So that doesn't, that's not only the purview of professional artists, that's anyone who wants to create something beautiful, wants to share something they've created, want to, wants to exercise those, those creative impulses that we all have. Every person is an artist in some way, shape or form. Yeah, for sure. Like even just going back to Soul Pancake, like I wasn't expecting anything. I just liked the idea of being able to write some things and seeing what happens and to be able to post tweets. I was in charge of the Twitter uh, for a while and just seeing everyone react to that. And it was just it was just cool. Like I wasn't it wasn't, you know, you didn't have to like make money or uh, have people write you fan mail. It was just kind of neat. The act itself Mm -hmm. uh, the process, if you will, you know, it's the journey, not the destination is part of the fun of making art. Now we're celebrating the centenary of the passing of Abdul Baha. Are there any stories that come to mind about Abdul Baha? What is this, what does this centenary year mean to you personally? Man, yeah, that's, you know, one of the amazing things is when you go see the Shrine of the Bab, you know, in Haifa, Israel, and this is where, as you might guess, the remains of the Bab are buried, but he was uh, martyred with a companion, Anis. He was martyred with him, and so they, they buried the remains together. And Abdu'l-Baha was also the son of the founder of the Baha'i Faith, was also buried there, but there was a plan to give him his own shrine in the future. Uh, the story, I guess, for me would be I hosted a series of devotionals during his visit to to America. And I found all those wonderful articles uh, that were written. It was the 100th anniversary of his visit the, from yes. 1912, was celebrated in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was all these articles written about him and everything from the New York Times and everything else. And it was just great just seeing these modern articles written about him. And I guess, uh, you know, I had a lot of seekers come during those days. And one of them was a, a student at a university. Uh, she was dating uh, a Baha'i, but she was not a Baha'i herself, but she was very interested. And she came to the vast majority of these um, devotionals. Mm -hmm. And then she was going to take a semester abroad in Italy. And she asked me, do you know anyone in Italy at this one city? I forget the name of the city. I was like, no, I don't know anyone, but I know someone who lived here that lives in England who, used, who are from Italy. So I will contact them and they will get to you. 
So I remember uh, contacting these people saying, hey, you have this seeker in this Milan or whatever it was, please have your contacts contact them. And a couple of weeks later, I checked with the seeker, have they contacted you? No, and I went back, I was like, please, man, you, you gotta understand, this is super important. I know it's not fun, but please do it. And so they finally made contact. And when this woman came back, uh, she saw me, she was like, let's go have lunch. And she was telling me, you know, I just, I feel so close to the Baha'i faith and I'm gonna declare. And then later on, she says that the one turning point was meeting the Baha'is in Italy because she realized that it was a worldwide faith practiced everywhere all the same. And I thought, gosh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't there, but I was the guy, the small ball, you know, inside baseball kind of guy. Hey, do this, man. Get you got to get contact her. And that teaching doesn't always have to be you're you're using your words to convey a message. It could be just a small little like nudging someone to do, nudging someone else to go make that contact. Mm. And so I think that was just one of the the, the great memories I had from that uh, time period and learning about Abdul Baha and how the one story that I can't get over is how he was going to take the Titanic and then um, decided on a different ship and then the Titanic sunk. And then you hear another story about like how he was going to take this train and miss the train and then it turns out the train was derailed and stuff. It's like, man, this guy, you know, he just, the master just having that intuition of, of knowing um, what exactly what needed to be done at every moment. Um, you know, something that we could never achieve, but uh, we can still emulate to some degree, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. what, whatever he promulgated. Mm-hmm. Well, Todd, this has been such a pleasure having you at my house, have, sharing dinner together. I uh, love it when you come through L.A. And, and getting to hear your story in great detail is really super inspiring. So thank you so much yeah. for, for being part of the Baha'i Blogcast universe. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much, Rain. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.